Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a micro-college in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head-on. Welcome to MicroCollege. Today, we are very honored to have as our our guest, Dr. Pavel Senko, who is the Director of Learning and Land and the Head of School at Schumacher College, which is located in Devon in the Southwest of England. Um, Pavel has worked for more than two decades in higher education in America and has always been drawn to colleges and universities whose curriculum fully integrates learning and with practice and thinking with embodiment. Having taught and served as Dean for nearly 15 years at Vermont's Sterling College, Pavel brings a depth of experience to Schumacher College and Dartington's trust approach to experiential learning. While pursuing research in ecologically minded curriculum design and teaching courses in environmental philosophy, Pavel is also a passionate endurance and adventure runner. Over the past five years, through a project called Climate Run, Pavel has covered hundreds of miles in the Arctic and subarctic on foot in order to bring attention to connections with our bodies and the more than human world in the face of rapidly changing climate. Pavel holds a PhD in English and is the author of many articles, chapters, and two books, Nature and Culture in the Northern Forest, Region, Heritage, and Environment in the Rural Northeast, and the vast book, This Vast Book of Nature, Writing the Landscape in New Hampshire's White Mountains. He's currently working on a book titled Resilience in the North, Adventure, Endurance, and the Limits of the Human, which threads together personal narrative and observation which environment, with an environmental philosophy and reflections on what it means to be human. So thank you again for joining us, Pavel. Well, thank you, Jacob. It's a real pleasure, and thanks for reaching out, and I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, lots of lots of things um, I'd like to talk to you, with you about, lots of connections to our work here at Thoreau College. Um, uh, as I mentioned, as we were getting on, uh, you know, both Schumacher College and Sterling College are, are important inspirations, really, I think, see as, as models and leaders with, with um, years of experience in the kind of work that we're we're trying to do here in Wisconsin. Um, so, um, but here on, on Micro College, on the podcast, we always like to start, start with people's biographies. So mm-hmm. I want to ask you to reach back to when you were 18, 19, 20, 21 years old and, and think about, just give us a picture of where you were during that time period. What were, what were the, the, the big influences on you, people, places, ideas, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and how did that, that shape the, the path that you took? Wow. Well, that seems like a very long time ago, uh, <laughs> if you ask me. Um, so that would have been, oh my goodness, uh, I think I started college in 1988. Uh, so that was quite quite a time back. And I went to Brandeis University uh, just outside of Boston in Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, as I think about those times, uh, you know, I was there for three and a half years um, and majored in English. So I you know, have a BA, an MA and a PhD all in English, although many would argue they aren't in English at all. Um, they're actually more in environmental humanities and you know philosophy and 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 those sorts of subjects. Um, but I I really looked forward to when I would when I was an undergraduate, you know, not just the you know the academic side of things, but um, I found myself quite occupied when I wasn't in class, you know, by escaping to the mountains um, and you know going out into the world. And I, I had a background, you know, my parents fortunately were 
uh, able to, you know, take me up to northern New Hampshire and to you know, spend a bit of time in the White Mountains, the the national forest there, and um, really got to explore and got to know those mountains quite intimately. Um, and so as I, you know, became an adult, uh, I continued in that um, and, you know, was summiting all sorts of mountains in, in different seasons and, you know, camping out and taking friends up there and most of whom hated the experience, but, um, <laughs> you know, became engaged with the, with like the outdoor club um, at Brandeis and, you know, took up uh, rock climbing and some more of the technical pursuits and ice climbing and things like that. You know, just any way to really spend more time outside. Um and, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, rock climbing and ice climbing were not the sports then that they are today. Um, the accessibility was, was you know, relatively limited and people looked at you as you were kind of a bizarre person as, as you were doing those things. Um, and so that, that was that was part, probably part of the appeal, you know, do something that's quite different um, and kind of out there. Uh, and, you know, there were certainly fewer people engaged in those pursuits at the time. So it felt a bit like you were you know, doing something quite extreme. Um, and you know, as, as I continued through college, I actually got a job with the Appalachian Mountain Club um, who run a series of huts and do uh, trail maintenance and, and support for, you know, throughout the White Mountain National Forest. Uh, and during my sort of college summers, I worked there. Uh, and then after I graduated, I also worked there for a winter, um, working in the huts and sort of supporting you know, backpackers that came up. And that gave me immediate access and opportunity to, you know, the intimacy of, of the mountains um, and the landscape that was there. Yeah, so it's actually during that time that I had my first experience with endurance, you know, running, sort of, you know, hiking really quickly uh, in what they describe as the hut traverse, you know, 52 miles, you know, from one end of the White Mountains to the other. Um, and it was the first time that I'd you know, been on my feet for 20 hours, uh, you know, doing that sort of thing and I absolutely fell in love with it, um, you know, and then, you know, spent a week recovering from that. Uh, and then you know, resume my job, but but kind of knew in my bones that that was something that I wanted to return to. Um, and interestingly, I didn't really uh, in any sort of real way until I was in my thirties. Um, you know, not not in that, not to that extent, not following those distances. And maybe it was sort of the increase in accessibility and popularity of you know endurance running as a sport um, that drew me in a little bit more. Uh, but certainly, my experiences in the White Mountains led me to uh, you know to pursue my PhD. Uh, which really focused on that region. Um, and I was really quite keen to look at, you know, how a landscape uh, transforms from, you know, these are certainly loaded terms, right? So from frontier to tourist economy. Um, and so effectively how, uh, you know, through a sort of literary cultural history lens, um, the White Mountains specifically in this case, uh, you know, evolved uh, in sort of the public perception and, and in descriptions and representations from probably about 1785 through to 1910, uh, 1911, the passage of the Weeks Act, um, you know, and moving forward into the 20th century. And that allowed me uh, not just to engage in amazing reading and sort of transformative, um, you know, uh, scholarship that was going on at the, at the time, this would have been in the mid, uh, mid to late 90s, but also to do field work. Uh, and to you know, go to the places that these authors were writing about and then from, and to know that, you know, Jeremy Belknap, when he was one of the first sort of European Americans to um, to climb Mount Washington, mm. right, to sort of follow his footsteps and and sort of see where he stopped and why he turned around and, and what his decisions were like. You know, that was really important to me. Uh, so I think throughout, um, so even those early years and and then you know throughout the PhD and, and even today with that climate run project that you talked about, 
you know, for me, going into the landscape to witness and to participate and to be at that intersection of the human and more than human world has really been fundamental to my professional and to my personal pursuits. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, like holistic vision of, of, of life and of, uh, of, you know, say an academic or a scholarly pursuit, which is also embodied and physical in a way. I think that I get a real sense from everything you do is that that, that intersection of, of the body and the mind and, and, and the exactly. landscape, right, is, 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 is beautiful. And something close to our hearts, obviously, we've named, we've picked up <laughs> Henry David Thoreau's name, and you're you you're there you know you've, you've spent a lot of time there in Thoreau Thoreau country and uh you know I'm sure it, yeah I mean, he he modeled a certain way something that's inspiring to us at least in in yeah. that in that way at a, an earlier phase and in, in our civilization absolutely I have, I have many well-thumbed copies of um you know most of Thoreau's works uh and you know tends to even now uh you know inflict some passages from Thoreau on students at Schumacher College and say no 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 but look you know, it's <laughs> absolutely relevant here and here's why um and, yeah, you know, it's definitely it's the case of a thinker who's who's been so influential that it becomes, you know, uh, yeah, sort of cliche almost some of the things that he yeah. said. But he was that's right. Them. Yeah, well, beautiful. So um, I think you know there, there's a lot that we that we could talk out talk about here. I think one of the, one of my goals though is to to share with our audience and um, something about Schumacher College where you are now, um, which is a, a fascinating, revolutionary, you know, uh, trail breaking kind of institution, and so. Um, yeah, maybe could could you give us a portrait of 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 what Schumacher College is? Because I think it absolutely. really is not comparable to almost anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I'll provide a slightly larger context because I think that's also helpful. And and also just to note, you, there was one book that you missed out on oh. on your sort of intro, which is a book that I co-edited with the Schumacher College founder Satish Kumar, titled "Transformative Learning." Oh, wonderful! Um, I get, happen to have a copy right here, which I could put up on the there screen. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Yeah, um, head, heart, and, and hands. And we put that out, yeah, head, heart, and hands. Uh, and we put that out oh, a year and a half ago or so. Um, and subsequently, we've actually uh, published another book titled Regenerative Learning uh, that I, I don't co-edit, but I have a chapter in. So really, I think we're coming to a point where, um, maybe I'll work backwards. We're coming to a point where, uh, you know, we've had 32 years of, of head, heart, and hands learning and sort of embodied community, ecologically focused learning at Schumacher College, as well as 100 years um, of transformative learning at Dartington Trust, uh, which is the, the charity of which Schumacher College is a part. Um, and so we've published in quite rapid succession two books that really focus on the educational process uh, here and are where, where its origins, where it comes from, um, and you know, where it's headed you know, in the next century. Um, and as part of that, we're actually uh, launching a new master's in transformative education, uh, which is you know, beginning this September. Uh, and, you know, that really, uh, for me, helps to encapsulate um, a lot of what we've been doing over the last you know, 30 or 100 years and give people the skills and the tools that they need to then make transformative change in the world, uh, you know, through an educational MA, an education focused MA. So, you know, that's sort of where we are at the moment and, and moving forward. Um, if we jump back 100 years or so, um, then, you know, the, the building that I'm sitting in now, actually the room that I'm sitting in, uh, was uh, one of the rooms that was occupied by um, Dorothy and Leonard Elmhurst. Uh, so a couple who were inspired, uh, Dorothy Elmhurst was formerly Dorothy Whitney, um, who was uh, raised in New York City uh, and became, I think, one of the wealthiest women in the country at age of 17 when she inherited half a billion dollars. 
Um, and you know, she also she founded some wonderful things in New York, such as the the New School for Social Research and um, the New Republic magazine, and you know, was really into very progressive social uh, transformative organizations and change. Um, and she, uh, I think her, I think it's her second husband, uh, Leonard Elmhurst, you know, was similarly interested in sort of agriculture and agroforestry um, and industry and enterprise. And they were both inspired by these transformative educational pioneers. Um, you, know, I, you know, John Dewey, for example, uh, was a real foundational influence on you know, anybody who's in experiential education. Um, and you know, she actually was a was a friend of the Whitney family, um, or he was a friend of the Whitney family, and so they, they, there was a collaboration happening there. Um, and Leonard Elmhurst was inspired by Rabindranath Tagore, um, who you know, the Nobel Prize winner, who also transformed the educational system in India uh, at about the same time. And between the influence of those two real transformative pioneers in education, um, Dorothy and Leonard came together and wanted to start a school. Uh, and so they were inspired to come to this place, uh, to the Dartington Estate, you know, in South Devon, in rural Southwest England. Um, there's an old falling down medieval estate in the 1920s. And they said, that's where we want. Um, they had the benefit of bringing quite a bit of capital. Uh, you know, so to be able to rebuild the buildings, be able to start all sorts of enterprises and experiments on the land, and really began a, pro a process that they describe as an experiment in rural regeneration, uh, which helped to support industry in and around the land. So, you know, developing community relationships, developing agro, agro um, what wasn't called agroecology then, but effectively, you know, uh, forestry and agriculture in concert with ecological systems, um, really innovative, progressive uh, um, learning in the arts, uh, and you know, across actually what we describe today as a center for learning at the intersection of arts, ecology, and social justice. Um, and really, that's what they were doing. Imagine the 20s and 30s yeah. um, in England doing that, right? Uh, with, uh, we recently um, dedicated one of our rooms to the right, social activist and entrepreneur, Michael Young, um, who was really quite well known uh, you know, globally, certainly in this country, for the Labour Party manifesto, which you know set the stage for um, organizations like the NHS, the National Health Service, or the um, you know, the Arts Council, or the School for Social Entrepreneurs, and all sorts of social transformative change. And he came here as a, as a boy of twelve, um, and you know came to school at the Dartington School in the in the forties, um, and the school was founded on these principles of. You know, we want to be um, sort of student-driven. Uh, we want students to participate in the governance. Uh, it what needs to be practice-led, experiential. And the first thing, uh, you know, Michael's daughter was here to sort of dedicate the room. She said one of the first things that he was asked to do is, you know, by Leonard Elmhurst, what do you want to do? What business do you want to start? Um, so he very quickly had started a business at age of 12 of selling eggs, <laughs> right? And he learned how to repair motors. And, and only then did he start to think about, you know, some of the... Um, you know, so some of those are more intellectual pursuits and, and other skills. So what we have done with the development of Schumacher College from 1991 onward um, is to take that to heart. Uh, I mean, effectively say, what is practice-led learning and how can we actually begin with the doing um, and use that as an entry point to, uh, you know, to, to sort of open up the context and open up the conversations around global connections, around our ability to leverage change, our ability to be transformative. And because that's an experiential and embodied process that students are you know, immediately drawn into, um, whether it's in the classroom and uh, you know doing particular projects that then they reflect on and see the context for, or if it's living in community and, and working in 
the um, the college gardens or helping to prepare the food or um, you know participating in the in the rhythms of the day. Um, all of those become sort of part of the embodied practice that then enhances the overall learning and the transformative experience that they have. And we found that that's absolutely true. Um, that even if students come here for a short period, whether it's one or two weeks, um, then sometimes that's sufficient to just sort of spark a little bit of interest um, in like, all right, how can I take this, this, what I've learned here and how can I make that bigger? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So maybe could you talk a little bit about the, the sort of the scope and structure of these programs? My sense yeah. is that there's actually a lot of change and there's development going on right now there about this. There is. So we're, we're in a in midst, I think you know, every college always needs to be right in the midst of an evolutionary process. Um, and so, for instance, I've, I've been here for four years, uh, came in 2019 in the autumn. And when I arrived, there were two postgraduate programs running at Schumacher, and there were 23 students enrolled in, in those two programs together. Um, and, you know, the, typically the college had run two programs, maybe occasionally a third, uh, and then a series of uh, short courses uh, as well over the course of the year, about 30 of them. Um, so people would come for a week or for three days and, and, and learn something quite specific. Uh, now we have about 120 students uh, and we've, we run about 90 different short courses over the year. Um, and in, in, in addition to the um, you know, eight postgraduate programs we have, we started an undergraduate program in uh, regenerative food and farming. So what we've done in this relatively short period during a global pandemic, when <laughs> you know, for, for a period of time there, you know, we weren't allowed to have students. Um, we had to have students online only. Uh, we've been able to you know, look at you know, what are the needs in the world? Um, and you know, what, uh, what are students coming to us wanting to know, wanting to learn? Um, and then you know, what are the best skills and tools that we can provide to, to an intergenerational cohort of students to go off and make that transformative change? Um, and what processes do we need to have in place? So we did make some transitions right in 2019 where this was before the pandemic, and thankfully we made these. Uh, we lowered our tuition fees uh, by about 40%. Uh, we transformed most of our uh, postgraduate programs to low residency. Uh, which means that students come for between two and five weeks at a time in residence, and then they go off and they um, hopefully will start applying some of what they've learned in their home communities or in their workplace. And then they come back again and, and repeat that over the course of the year. So each master's program is approximately 10 months long. Um, it's quite an intensive program, usually four taught modules and then a dissertation module. Uh, and then our undergraduate program is more fully residential. Um, so in the UK, uh, an undergraduate degree is three years typically. Uh, so you know we're in the sort of latter half of our first year of the of the BSc, um, and we're right now recruiting for a second cohort. And so hopefully, um, you know, by the end of year three, I will actually have probably I would say about fifty percent of all Schumacher students will be engaged specifically in food and farming related courses. Um, whether it's we've got a master's uh, program in regenerative food farming and enterprise, we also have a um, certificate-based six-month residency in agroecology, um, so practical agroecology, and those students are here from April to October each year. Uh, and so really the focus is shifting um, you know, slightly to thinking much more practically and acting much more practically in the service of food systems and food systems transformation. Uh, we're in the beginnings of a conversation around developing a program in uh, food systems leadership uh, so that we can do that on a, on a much larger scale. And 
you know, we're even stepping outside. You know, one of the important pieces for me is that not only do we have this 12, beautiful 1200 acre estate, um, which has, you know, it, it's a quite a complex, uh, you know, structure here. We have residential tenancies. We've got, you know, business tenants. We've got four active farms run by different uh, partners. Uh, we have a hundred acre, you know, ancient woodland with a, with a uh, ancient scheduled monument in, embedded in it. Um, you know, we've got six, six kilometers of river frontage on the river Dart that's on the estate. And it's absolutely beautiful place. I feel like I'm on holiday whenever I come to work. Um, but at the same time, that can can be a bit of a trap, right? Right. Because, you know, we are, you know, it's a three and a half hour train ride from London. Um, it's not the most accessible place to come. Yet historically, it's been a place where people have gravitated to from around the world and come here to have these amazing experiences, whether in the Summer School of Music, which has been running for 70 years to bring, you know, all sorts of uh, world-renowned composers here, or whether it's people like, uh, James Lovelock and you know Tagore himself and, and others coming in, you know, to support the learning on the learning side. Um, it 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 is also it's also the case that we've got this global network because people come in and then they they go back out again. And I often you know share that many of our Schumacher graduates seem to want to begin the Schumacher College wherever they end up. Um, and so because of that, we have these wonderful partners in. Places like Peru and Colombia and Brazil and South Africa and India and Japan and China and Australia and all over the world that have these sort of um, sort of uh, upstart communities, right? That are about community living and embodied practice and experiential learning and living and very often about food production and, and food systems generation. So we're also developing, um, you know, right now in partnership with the UN Development Program. A, um, a global network, a global learning network in conscious food systems, uh, where we're creating this sort of ground up uh, curriculum design um, that's built on what all of these you know, partners from around the world can contribute, because recognizing there's expertise all over the place, um, and that we can be, you know, our service is as facilitators to help that equitable exchange of knowledge and experience across a network like that. So for me, it's not only do I want people to you know, engage in practice-led you know, experiential learning here in this beautiful place? But I also want to be able to reach out um, and you know, we historically have been, uh, but to reach out in new ways now you know, with the technologies that we have available uh, to be able to leverage even greater change um, and to support people who would never have the opportunity to come to a place like this. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really exciting, right? I think that's that's um, you know our our history here at Thoreau College is much shorter than that one, and and our our footprint is at this point much smaller. But even we also see that our students, you know, our people who have any contact here also want to bring this idea elsewhere, and it does seem like a part of the mission, really. And, and it's it's cool to see that happening on a global level in the way that you're describing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think you know you're one of the things that stands out about Schumacher. You know Schumacher College has you know is, um, has is named after E. F. Schumacher, the writer of the famous "Small Is Beautiful," which is uh, you know a very influential book in our local community. And um, you know this humanly scaled kind of uh, enterprises of micro colleges and so forth takes a lot from those ideas. Um, you you as you're describing you know some growth and development from a situation where you have 23 people you know living together in a, in a remote location to 120 or 200 people who are um, in different stages of, of, of remote 
or you know um, low residency kind of engagement. Um, how how are you working with that transition with some of these core values of head, heart, and hands engagement and 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 this kind of small and small is beautiful EF Schumacher kind of thing? Uh, well, I mean, honestly, that's a key question for us. Um, you know, how to be able to you know, continue to do uh, you know the sort of community led learning really. Um, you know, because it all, all comes down to that sort of experience in community and working with, you know, fellow students, staff, volunteers, residential volunteers who we have, um, you know, in the context of also being as accessible and affordable uh, as possible yeah. um, and not wanting to, you know, limit access uh, as much as we possibly can. So, you know, one, just to reflect, this is the, I think, 60th anniversary of, of the publication of Small is Beautiful. So there are all sorts of events, you know, going on that, that we're participating in as well. Um, and... It's interesting, as you know, I often have these discussions about, well, what is small, mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, to, to take another term from Schumacher, you know, what is appropriate technology? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and what, you know, because that, those, those definitions, I think, are quite open and they were defined in a particular way 60 years ago. Um, and I think we can define them in, in a contemporary way now. Uh, and I remember conversations when I was at Sterling College when, you know, we had sort of similar ideas we, you know, we had, I think we had like 60 students or 70 students. And, you know, we recognized that to, to maintain some financial sustainability, we needed to grow at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. So what was that magic number of students? And somebody said 125, you know, beyond 125, then it becomes too big. And somebody said, well, you know, 200, beyond two, and somebody said 60. And, and so, you know, I think it really depends on how you approach the, the relationships within that community. Um, and, and I'll, I think one other example that, that's useful here is, you know, I'm describing us as being, I keep looking out the window because it's so beautiful out there. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm, looking at, I'm looking at a, you know, grade two listed garden outside my office window, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, sort of contrary potentially to some of the things we're talking about is beautifully manicured, um, you know, garden that people come and actually pay entry to, to come see, um, which we can come back to how that might be part of a, a more complex estate. But we are on this 1,200-acre estate, so where I'm sitting is probably at about a mile from where a lot of the Schumacher classes happen. Um, some of them happen in the in the buildings that are near me, but we're actually quite spread out on the campus or on the estate itself, um, which has some of its challenges in terms of how do you uh, sort of define community in terms if you can't all sit in the same room at the same time. Um, and so we do create opportunities for people to sit in the same room at the same time or to gather together uh, as much as we possibly can. Uh, we have a head of community learning, um, a woman called Sarah, Sarah Gray, who you know, helps to organize both the residential volunteers um, who have been sort of instrumental to Schumacher. So you know, people come and volunteer here for it's between one month and nine months and they they you know we provide them with uh, accommodation and meals and then they work in service of the the learning community um and interact with the students and uh, sometimes participate in some of the learning programs and i think we have about 10 of them at the moment uh, so thinking about that scale about you know 10 for 120 students you know that's actually an interesting ratio um to help sort of support that community piece uh, and we're right now, as as we're growing, we're continuing to put new sort of supports and structures in place. So, you know, working with Sarah to develop, um, you know, like uh, residential wardens um, and people who add a bit more continuity um, to the structure. 
And you know, we also look at some of our programs which are longer residency, such as the undergraduate course. You know, and we actually met with one of our students yesterday. Said, well, you know, we're the first group that's going to be here for three years. Um, how can we participate more in the development of, of the community? You know, since they have a perhaps more of a vested interest than somebody who's here for two weeks. Um, so it is an interesting sort of puzzle, and and we talk about it as a flow. That's where people coming in, staying, and then other people overlapping and then coming together. Um, and it, in, in some respects, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, but logistically, it can be kind of a challenge to create those spaces where, um, you know, sometimes I describe it as scaffolding spontaneity, um, where, you know, our job is to create this scaffold so that people can, oh, bump into each other and have these wonderful conversations or know, have a, um, a work experience together with students that they don't have classes with and, and things like that. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. Um, but, you know, I'll say it's not without its challenges. Absolutely. Yeah, that that is touching so many uh, questions that are very actively being explored here at, at Thoreau College. Um, we were speaking here in, in mid-May. Um, and we are just this week, the last couple of days, welcoming in a new group of students for a, a, a shorter program, a one month program. They're joining a group of students who have been here for, for three or four months in advance. And so exactly this process of weaving together two groups for a, a different season and different kind of cycle of, of outdoor activities and, and academic activities. We also have um, one or two day session folk school classes with, with people who come. So we're, we're doing a lot of these, these same things. And it is the goal, you know, the, the beautiful things that you're describing about people bumping into each other and, and working together you know, there's does you know, building a scaffolding is is a, is a good metaphor for that because that that is part of the weaving that that happens in a place like this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for every time that it's you know wonderful to bump into somebody, then you realize, well, I'm bumping into them because the line for the food is really long because there are all these <laughs> people here that weren't here last week, right? And so you know, we want to make sure that we work all those systems through. So yeah, it's a it's a bit tricky, but you know, it also we're we're transitioning in some of our um, uh, physical spaces as well. Uh, so, you know, for three years, we were not allowed to use the sort of main building that most of the Schumacher classes happen in, uh, the old postern, it's called, because the roof had collapsed. Um, and so we spent, you know, three years sort of project managing a new roof for that building. And only in November did we start getting back in. Hmm. Uh, so there's this whole sort of movement, this transition. And, and so I think a, an interesting question for, for Thoreau scholars is, you know, is place right, so fundamental to identity that um, you can't take that identity and move it somewhere else and to create that place um, you know, to be your own, right? So, you know, if you're so invested in a particular building or a particular, you know, uh, landscape, um, can you take that same sense of community and move it someplace else and, and to rebuild that same community? Um, and of course, it will be different because you're in a slightly different place. But I think we have found over the last, you know, I haven't been here that long, but over the last decade, um, that the college has moved around a bit. Um, and I think it's a testament to the sort of the strength of community that you can put it somewhere else um, and it can flourish in different and new ways and, and, and use uh, facilities that you never knew could be used in those particular ways. But for me, that's actually really fascinating. Yeah, that and so place-based education is 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 a key you know principle that we're working with here. Obviously you've devoted much of your life to places and thinking about places um, and its role in education. Um, and you've got an institution that's bringing people, it's, you know, instructors and students from, from everywhere in the world to a very particular place. Um, yep. Is that, that's an interesting question. What is the meaning of, of a place-based education, you know, like that for people who 
who are not from there and, and probably won't stay there, most of them. They will they will go back to their homes or somewhere else in the world entirely. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. And and as I talk about more distributed global learning networks, right, that, that's an attempt to you know reach people who are obviously in different places um, and have connections to different places, cultures, communities, time zones, you know, economies, um, politics, etc., um, and bring them into uh, into a sort of coher more coherent network um, where we could sort of have that exchange of, of learning and knowledge. Um, and, and and it is really it's really interesting. I, I mean, I'm reflecting on the the sort of similarities between here and uh, where Sterling College is in in northern Vermont. You know, Vermont itself it seems to be a magnet uh, for you know innovation in you know, progressive land management and in you know, value-added food production um, and in agriculture and cheese produce production. Um, and just, you know, I was, you know, able to benefit really greatly from, you know, all the breweries and all the cheese producers and and all of the, you know, delicious food that was happening, you know, in that area of Vermont. Similarly to South Devon, um, you know, lots of enterprise, you know, lots of people come here and say, all right, you know, I can have some access to land here. Um, I can, you know, sort of try this experiment. And, you know, right here on the estate, we've got people that make kefir, we have people that make kimchi, um, big bagels. There's this amazing uh, relocalization project of heritage grains uh, where they grow 40 tons of heritage grain on the estate. And there's a partnership with two other partners where they actually um, use a mill that was imported from Vermont um, to you know, grind the, the wheat into flour and bake it and sell it in a bakery here in town. Um, and it's just this amazing project, which reminds me a lot of what was happening in Vermont when I was there. And I'm sure it's in many, many other places, but there seem to be sort of these these areas where people gravitate to you know, because of the place and the place creates the opportunity for community. And then the community then um, sort, of, uh, sort of reconnects people to place. Um, and I was having a, a, a visit from uh, an organization called the Orchard Project, uh, which here in the UK works to develop uh, in partnership with um, with often urban communities, right? To develop uh, you know, community orchards and effectively to plant or manage the orchard, but also to manage and plant the, the seeds of community. Uh, and we had a long conversation around the connection between soil health and community health. And you know, what, if, if, if as we do, we talk about regenerative processes and regenerative food and farming, you know, that idea of regeneration has its roots in soil health and um, soil productivity and so on. Right. And to, to sort of a constant enfolding and refolding into uh, an ecological system to actually make it better than it was. So it's not not sort of sustaining some arbitrary sustainability level, but it's actually let's make it better. Let's work in concert with ecological systems to, to grow things better. Um, and so, you know, my sort of theory, um, and I think it, it has been sort of proven, but we're trying to create more quantitative data around it, is that there is a distinct connection between the health of the soil and the health of the community, um, and you know, for me, that's that's as clear a connection to place as you could possibly have, right? And you know, what what we can demonstrate here is that vibrancy of that connection. Um, that in fact, you know, through our agri agricultural processes, through our land management, through our work together as, in a community, you know, we have this impact on the land that then has an impact on the learning on the community, and then can go off into the world because students hopefully will learn that's a connection you can make anywhere. Um, and here are the ways that you can frame that. So you can do it in Peru, you can do it in India, you can do it in these other places. Right? So for me, that's the transfer of that, which I think is obviously a key to all experiential learning. You know, how do you how do you transfer that into what sometimes students call, I think disparagingly, the real world, 
right? <laughs> um, because I live here and I work here. This is my real world. Um, but how do you how do you take that in other contexts, right? That might not be here. Yeah, fantastic. And that that you've answered the question I was going to ask next really was to characterize the relationship between Schumacher College and its the, the surrounding community. But I think, yeah, clearly profound and and extensive. Um, yeah, and 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 complex, absolutely complex. Um, you know, I mentioned we've got uh, you know all of these commercial partnerships, and we have twenty five land based partners uh, or tenants rather. Um, you know, including a number of active farms. You know, everything from a you know, rec nationally recognized biodynamic farm to a farm that has a um, you know a veg box scheme and a CSA um, to sort of equine therapy to you know wow. all, all sorts of things are going on. All of which we I'd love for our students to to partner with, and you know many of those places do offer placements for our students, and so we have a sense of sort of collaboration there. But I always think, it, you know, is there more that we that we could be doing? Um, and you know, so we're continuing to explore ways that, whether through formal structures, um, you know, MOUs or or other sorts of contractual relationships, you know, or through I'm sorry the the incidental community working, um, you know, because there is a, a fair bit of sharing resources. You know, we might, you know, a farm might take the manure from the horse, from the equine therapy, you know, uh, concern and use that for fertilizer. And, you know, those sorts of um, sharing uh, of resources as well as ideas go on all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing and, and very inspiring, you know, to, to what we hope to do here. Um, I'm wondering, in all that you're describing, and this is the impression I've had of Schumacher for a long time, is there are all of these different facets, many different things going on, different lengths of programs, different types of focus, from the arts to sustainable agriculture to these conferences and all kinds of things. Um, would you say you know, there seems to be you know, a strong aesthetic, a strong like kind of ethical and philosophical core to all of this? And how how do you maintain that and cultivate that? And, and you know, all the people who are coming in, how do you connect to the kind of a, a kind of an epistemological or philosophical kind of shared vision of, of, of reality <laughs> with all those things going on? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll admit I'm I'm wary of shared visions of the world, um, you know, because I think what what I'd love to think that we do is actually open up, um, you know, people's sort of minds to the multiplicity of visions of the world, uh, and to think about you know how we can look at sort of expertise from indigenous communities or expertise from a uh, you know, from from the historical past or expertise, you know, from the contemporary present and bring people who are interested in technology and philosophy and economics and design all together. Um, and I think that for me is is the strength of, of the teaching that we do. So, you know, I think there is an underpinning sort of pedagogical approach. Um, so if, if we have a shared philosophy, it's around the head, heart and hands approach to learning. It's around the, you know, practice led uh, embodied approaches that are grounded in community and ecological thinking. Um, you know, it was a few, I think it was in 2017 or somewhere that I was in uh, in Austin at the South by Southwest uh, EDU conference. And I, I gave a talk on uh, ecology as a model for uh, for teaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I made the point there that I've, I've been saying over and over again throughout the years, and, I, you know, it, it does find its way into some of the chapters in the books that, I, that I've written that, you know, from the you know, very assignment that you do in the classroom and sort of the day-to-day, -day, all the way up to the governance of the organization, right? There is an ecological model um, that is about resilience, that's about sort of regenerative processes, 
Um, that's a, not about verticality, uh, but it, it's about sort of horizontal structures and depth of structures um, and sort of constant collaboration and transparency and engagement that, you know, uh, it, it seems like a basic question, but, you know, how can you teach about ecological ideas and concepts without living those concepts in every fiber of your being, right? Um, which, again, in the context of the real world that we live in can be a really challenging place to be. Um, you know, ecology doesn't always, you know, pay the bills. Um, so we are, we have to constantly think about, uh, sort of the real world, not, not the real world again, but sort of the, sort of the, I don't know, multifaceted contexts, uh, in which we live, right. So that we can focus on these ideas of ecological, um, thinking that, that, I think are essential to underpin any sort of change or transformation we're going to make in the world, but to make sure that they are truly sort of financially sustainable and viable um, so that they can be replicated um, in other places. And people see this not just as, the, oh, this is a cool model that they're doing down at Schumacher, but you can't really do that. Right. right? Um, and there are plenty of examples of places like Schumacher that have tried to do this, but have not been successful in the long term. Um, you know, I'm, I'm quite aware you know, it, it's a sensitive subject for me that, you know, liberal arts colleges in the U.S. are are, are not, you know, where they used to be. And, and there have been quite a few college, small college closures. Um, and so I, I think, you know, coming back to the network concept, mm -hmm. you know, when people ask me, uh, maybe this is drawing some threads together as well from our conversation, when people ask me about scale, right, and say, well, the only way to make it, you know, financially sustainable is to get to X number of students, I say, well, X number of students isn't really sort of ecologically sustainable, right. but if you've got, you know, 200 students here and then 200 students over here and then a couple hundred over here, and they are rigorously networked so that they can share experiences, they can do cross teaching, they can go visit one another, they can, you know, be online together and all of that, then all of a sudden you've got, you know, thousand, 10,000 students all networked in together. And that I think is an ecological scaling up that we need to pursue more. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's a, it's definitely a um, it's a vision that uh, that really resonates with me. And uh, yeah, the 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 ecological image there is is, is powerful. And um, so yeah, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, I think it, it related. To, you know, I think in the last uh, few minutes that we have here, I wanted to to talk a bit about your uh, about your your interest in and in practice of sort of embodiment um, through the, the climate run, through these these endurance kind of related things, and also. A word that 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 I see coming up in your work a lot is the word resilience, and yeah. um, you know, and and what what practices, um, you know, let's start with 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 the with you know these the climate run and and these kind of embodied practices, you know, what does that uh, focus on that bring into a person's development into their education, um, mm. in in a more you know holistic sense? Yeah. Oh, thank you. And that's a there's so many so many ways I could answer that. Um, <laughs> And yeah, you know, well, just let me start with the, there was a there's a period where I had a slight shift in responsibilities, it gave me just a little bit more time, you know, back at about 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. Um, and I had, you know, begun uh sort of trail running and endurance running in, in earnest, um, you know, as I said earlier in, in my 30s or so, and then was thinking about, well, that's fun and all. And it gets me out into the world and is really sort of self-serving and um allows me to. Uh, become more resilient by effectively re-energizing myself, you know, through my connection with the more than human world. Um, and I, I think, again, I think Thoreau was quite fond of doing that himself, right? You know, climbing to the tops of trees and, you know, hanging out there and, 
We would not be the saunter as a regular practice. So the <laughs> oh, excellent, good, good, and it's very his very creative etymology around uh, around saunter, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so the wilderness in the backyard, you know, whether whether it's that or whether it's actually going off into, you know, what we might describe as as true wilderness. You know, both of those were quite um, you know important to me. So, but there came a time when I thought, well, all right, my background is also in environmental humanities and in philosophy, and how do I and, and in ecological thinking, um, and how can I bring these things together in a way that they actually help something, um, that they serve some purpose? Uh, and, you know, I, I, I set myself some, you know, fairly, uh, you know, su substantial goals, uh, like, you know, let's go run across Iceland, for example, um, <laughs> and thought, all right, well, let's give that a shot. Uh, and, you know, my original thinking around it was, and I, you know, I got sponsors and, you know, uh, went out there, was you know, supported by family along the way. It was a you know, really amazing, uh, amazing journey. Um, and, you know, so across Iceland for 150 miles or so over three days, just, just to be clear about that. Um, and I thought going into it, this is going to be about, well, let's see if we can, uh, you know, leverage some of these uh, product manufacturers to use more eco-friendly products and to, you know, try to minimize the impact on the environment through participating in these sports already. Um, but it very quickly came clear to me, um, even during that first event, that it was less about that. It was more about the human connection to place um, that as I was going across places where the impact of climate change was much more visible than it was you know, in the Northeast US, for example, uh, where I was literally running by you know, mountains where there used to be a glacier five years ago, there was no longer a glacier. Um, and in 2014, there was actually the first study that was able to connect um, you know, uh, post-glacial or isostatic rebound um, when glaciers melt in, in Iceland to anthropogenic climate change. Um, so they were literally able to connect the dots and measure, um, you know, post-glacial uplift of at, at amazing velocities of about 30 or 40 centimeters or millimeters per year, uh, millimeters, not centimeters, millimeters per year, but literally almost enough so you could sit there and watch the earth's crust rebound as a result of, um, you know, greenhouse gases caused by anthropogenic climate change. Um, and, or vice versa. Uh, and, and I wanted to be in those places. Um, and it became quite quickly as I did that run. And as I ran across Arctic Scandinavia, um, you know, up the Nordkulitladen uh, trail between Norway and Sweden and Finland, um, you know, visited Svalbard for some running and the Faroe Islands and, and other sorts of places, as well as some in the U.S. Um, it was about sort of going back and giving, you know, large scale presentations to all sorts of different audiences, um, about, look, look at these beautiful pictures of this landscape, which is then now being impacted by what we're doing here. So let's connect those dots for ourselves. And then also, you know, how can our participation in things like endurance running or, or things, whatever sports you are, you're participating in, um, how can that, uh, by recognizing your place in the world and your connection to the more than human, begin to build a more resilient relationship between yourself and the world around you, uh, which hopefully then can precipitate change, right? So all of that is to say that when I started developing, you know, specific programs in applications of environmental philosophy, um, you know, and teaching a course on trail running at Sterling College, um, and, you know, developing the master's program in movement, mind, and ecology here at Schumacher, that was at the heart of those. Um, and, you know, I got, just gave a, a seminar to the Movement Mind Ecology students a week ago, and I showed them a picture of this was the moment 
in Norway when I thought about this program at first. <laughs> because this was the moment where I felt an absolute blur between the human and the more than human. Like I, I, I was, you know, some people call it a runner's high. I think it's quite different than that. Uh, but it's recognizing your vulnerability in the context of a much larger world. Um, and I use the term more than human to sort of designate, you know, we're just part of this bigger thing. Uh, we're not other than it. And so I wanted to create programs that give entry point for students to, to experience that same thing. And then again, to use that as an entry point to understanding that context um, and moving it forward. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I think uh, for for listeners that uh, part of the context, um, that we were put in touch with with you, Pavel, by one of your students just completing this this uh, movement, mind, and ecology uh, master's program um, with a focus. Um, each each student, as I understand it, chooses a different movement discipline basically to work with, and and this 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 student's discipline was was kayaking, basically was 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 paddling, and uh, is just about to set off on a canoe trip from northern Minnesota all the way to Hudson bay all the way across canada so like these long distance you know deep immersions into wilderness and in, into the landscape are um are really inspiring and there's a there's a long tradition of that you know the pilgrimage and the you know the various kind of vision quests into 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 nature as 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 powerful you know human development and educational absolutely I mean, I, I mean i think it you know it's great i've worked with isaac both at sterling college and at schumacher college which was pretty amazing mm -hmm. um, i think it's worth making that point that um you know those are incredibly privileged things for us to be able to do obviously mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't go unnoticed i mean they cost a lot of money they cost a lot of time um, and you know, not everybody, very few people have access to those sorts of experiences. So one of the reasons that I'm keen on creating programs of various kinds um, is to be able to give everybody the access to you know, just building a deeper relationship with the more than human world through some movement practice. Um, it, you know, and I think during lockdown here was a great experience of you really couldn't, you weren't allowed to go out for more than an hour at a time um, you know, to take your daily walk. Right. So I got very familiar with the hedgerows in my neighborhood um, and to, got to understand the, that biodiversity and that species relationship um, and the foraging opportunities and, and all of that that happened there. Right. So I think there are entry points for everyone in this context. Um, and for me, it happens to be, you know, the endurance run or, or the endurance uh, you know, adventure race somewhere. Um, but hopefully I can take a kernel of that back and to help inspire others to, to participate on, uh, in whatever way they can. Yeah. Amazing. Um, I need to, to let you go, um, Pavel. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your work and your leadership. And uh, thank you for sharing with us here today. Great. Thanks so much, Jacob. It's been a real pleasure.